Amen. Thanks to the worship team. That was a great new uh, hymn we sang today. Uh, and it's been good seeing with you. Hey, um, I'm still here. I wasn't uh, sure if I would be, and I was thinking, oh, well, gosh, I'll probably be done long before we get to Romans 13, so I won't have to deal with that one. But the Lord had other plans. Um, and actually, it's going to work out that we'll do every major teaching chapter in Romans by the time we finish. Isn't that great? Um, uh, so uh, it's taken a few months, six, seven, eight months, but uh, we'll have that under our belt, which is excellent. Romans chapter 13. It's ironic that Romans chapter 13, uh, I suppose it's not ironic. It's where we've been in the world the last couple of years. But this is the most controversial passage at the moment in Romans People aren't coming to me about predestination and bothering about that. People aren't saying, you know, what's God's plan with Israel and um, getting excited about that. They're not even coming to me about the wrath of God or the exclusivity of Christ. That's in Romans. They're coming to me about Romans 13. Uh, This is where the great um, controversy anger is at um, in our current world. Romans 13. Father, we want to ask you to guide us as we think on this passage, as we consider its um, application to our lives, what you are saying to us. Please help us, Lord. Um, We so easily put our own framework on these things, put our own context on these things, instead of letting your scripture set the context and the response be driven by what your word is telling us. So help us as we think on these verses uh, to apply them rightly Um, and to do it to the glory of your name, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, Again, now, uh, rules of literary interpretation. I seem to find myself saying this again and again and again. Um, Don't ignore them whenever you come to a passage and just take a verse out of context or anything like that. Context is king when it comes to Scripture. Context is king in understanding what Scripture says. And context particularly in understanding what Scripture says to ensure that you do not interpret one passage of Scripture in such a way that it contradicts another passage of Scripture. These are critical basics. If you go study literature at uh, university, you will learn these critical basics. It is no different when it comes to the Bible. Um, So much damage is done in churches when verses are taken out of context or verses are manipulated uh, because context is ignored. Remember where we are, Uh, we're doing this little mini section here in um, this term from chapter 12 to chapter 16. As we looked at um, what is the gospel, chapter 1 to 11, chapter 12 to 16 looks at uh, the transforming power of that gospel, the gospel that saves us, chapter 1 to 11, chapter 12 to 16, the transforming power that enables us to live Christ-like lives in this fallen world. Remember the two verses of chapter 12 set the theme for all of these verses, all of these chapters, chapter 12 to 16. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That's the context for everything that follows and all the instructions that follow that this transformation happens beginning within the mind, the heart, the body, follows into how we live 
amongst one another. Chapter 12, transformed community of believers, as we looked at last week, using our gifts to serve one another. And I see every week there's more and more opportunities to serve. There's going to be two people left sitting in the seats by the time you've all finished and signed up for everything. Um, And that chapter 12 unpacks what that means to live transformed lives in God's community. And here in chapter 13, the focus is on... um, is, from a tran- is on living those transformed lives in the wider non-Christian world, the wider um, world where government rules. Uh, and so we're looking here at a picture of what transformed society could potentially look like. And um, it's important to remember this, and we'll see this as we unpack it. There is a positive aspect to what Paul's plan is here. There's a strategy here that Paul has in place because... He's keeping the big picture in mind. He's keeping the gospel in mind. If you lose that, if you lose sight of that, then you're going to get caught up in all the details and and end up going down the wrong route. So keep that in mind as we come to these particular verses and this chapter and the context of this chapter, which we will look at as well. Just three things I want to unpack. First of all, I want you to see what Paul says about God's delegated authority, which, of course, is the state. These verses are very clear on that. God has delegated authority to rulers on earth um, to govern the world um, under him. So, um, first of all, you see this picture of them delegated to rule God's world. And look at verse 1, 2, and 3. You actually see it three times, just in case you're slow to understand. He repeats this three times. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Do you see that? Three times. Uh, Authorities have been established by God. There's no authority except that which God has established. You're rebelling against what God has instituted. God is... Paul is saying that God is the one who puts all rulers and governments in place. And you see this throughout scriptures. Um, uh, uh, Even in the Old Testament, um, uh, pagan kings um, are said to have been raised up by God. The Babylonians in in Jeremiah 25, I think it is, uh, are called God's servant. The pagan Babylonians who invaded uh, Jerusalem and, and took the Israelites into exile. Cyrus, the Persian pagan king, in, um, in Isaiah, in a number of chapters in Isaiah 25, 29, and so on, I think, um, is it's actually called God's anointed, actually, in one of the verses. Um, uh, God's servant. So even pagan kings are placed there by God. And this is quite startling when you come to think of it, particularly in our liberal, easily offended world today, to come to understand that actually... Even oppressive Roman, uh, the, even the oppressive Roman Empire that Paul was in, was put there by God. Nazi Germany, communist China. I mean, that's quite a startling thing. I mean, that must sound so shocking to people today. When God says, actually, every government is established by God even the most wicked. Now, Paul does qualify that. Do you see what he says there? God appoints earthly governments and rulers 
with the responsible to rule rightly and justly. It is expected that they should rule rightly and justly. Um, verse, th verse 3, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear for, of the one in authority? Do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So he's saying that there is an expectation on the state to do what is right. And we should be submitting to them as they expect us to do what is right. Uh, authorities are given that um, mandate to rule justly and rightly, including, as he says there in verse 4, the death penalty for those um, um, who, who deserve it, murderers and so on. They are the ones who bring God's wrath upon the wrongdoer. And it's very interesting. When we finished last week, when Paul said at the end of chapter 12, um, don't take revenge, leave room for God's wrath, that's not just on the last day. There is an expectation that the state carries out some of that punishment now for those who do wrong or do wicked or do injustice. There's an expectation that is given that they will carry out that task. God gives the state the right to execute murderers, not unborn babies. You see that? They're expected to do what is right and just. It's, it's actually not surprising because it's part of the creation mandate that is given to humankind from, from the beginning of Genesis. You've been doing Genesis in your small groups. God has given that mandate to us, to rule the earth and subdue it. What happened is sin came in and ruined it. And so that creation mandate that's given to government, that's given to parents, that's given to uh, pastors, it's churches, that's given to magistrates, that creation mandate to care for our world, to rule it rightly, is given to all of us and ruined by all of us. Governments, churches, parents. None of us gets it right. None of us gets it right. Um, and the, this obsession that some people have to, that everything will come right if we just get a Christian government. You know how foolish and dangerous that is? Because Christian governments also have sinful natures. And if you, if you know your history well enough, you'll know how badly many governments who claimed to be Christian treated their people. Christian governments, so-called Christian governments, were the ones that promoted slavery in the 1700s. So-called Christian governments had apartheid. So-called Christian governments colonized other countries. Things won't just come right if only we had a Christian government. The Puritans, the Puritans who probably were at one stage closest to being godly and right, once they got power, just killed anyone that disagreed with them. It's a, false, it's a false hope that the answer to our world's woes is a Christian government. All governments are given by God, whether they profess to be Christian or not, and all governments are accountable to God, whether they profess to be Christian or not. Do you see uh, three times 
sec, uh, this is really a second part of point one, three times we, we see here that the state is given the responsibility to serve God's purposes. And again, it says it three times, verse four, for the one in authority is God's servant to, for your good. Uh, they are God's servants, verse four goes on to say, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse six, you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Three times, every state, whether they realize it or not, is actually responsible to serve God's purposes. They are appointed as God's servants. Even if they don't know it, ignorance of the law is no excuse. God has given the state the responsibility to serve his purposes. Interestingly, in verse 4, the word for servant twice there is the word deacon. And in verse 6, the word for servant is the Greek word for like a priest or a minister, a sacred service. Isn't that interesting? But the state is actually given a sacred task of serving God's purposes on earth as the agent of wrath for the wrongdoer, the one to bring punishment on the one who does evil. I mean, that's the, the strength of the language Paul is using is actually quite startling and a little bit disturbing for us, I think. Um, perhaps we've been over-democratized in our thinking. But there is a clear picture here that the state whichever state it is, is actually given a sacred task of serving God's purposes, whether they realize it or not. Earthly leaders, earthly kings, earthly presidents are not put there by voters, ultimately, or their bloodline, or a revolution. Earthly rulers are put there by God. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was part of this country's government and I heard these truths about my God-given role as a servant of God, as accountable to God, if I was in government and I heard these things, I'd be pretty afraid. I'd be pretty scared. Because I'm going to have to give an account before God for this trust and sacred service that has been given to me. I mean, if I was in government, I'd be on my knees calling on God for wisdom and grace to rule rightly and wisely. I'd be very careful to ensure that the rules are just and fair. I'd be very careful to ensure that, that injustice is dealt with. I'd be very careful to ensure that we govern rightly. Because serving in government is a fearful responsibility and ultimately a responsibility that God will hold us to account for. Which, by the way, is why we are instructed, 1 Timothy chapter 2, to spend less time complaining about our government and more time praying for them. We should be praying for them. It's easy to complain about leadership. It's not so easy to pray for them. And the government will have to give account for God. Where did the millions of taxpayers' money go that's unaccounted for? Well, a judicial commission is not ultimately going to make them answer for that. God will. What sort of organized crime was behind state capture? Well, 
the Judicial Commission is not ultimately going to be the one who's going to hold them accountable. It's going to be God. And God will hold states accountable for unjust laws and for wickedness that they perpetuated on the unborn, on the marginalized, on people of other races, on those who they tortured and slaughtered. And all those of us who have delegated authority will be in the same boat, same in the church, same in the family. We all have designated responsibility. And ultimately, secondly, that responsibility that we have to authorities on earth, verse 1, is submission. Let everyone be subject, verse 1 says, to governing authorities. That's in a passive imperative. In other words, that is saying, this is what you should willingly do. This is what you as a believer should willingly do. You should put yourself under the order that God has established in this world. And that includes uh, the state, putting yourself under earthly leaders, um, submitting to their rule, 1 Peter 5, Romans 13, many other places. Submission uh, is part of the Christian life, submitting to one another out of reverence for the Lord, Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands and wives, wives submitting to their husbands, children obeying their parents. All of those kind of orders of authority are put in place. And you and I, if we want our society to function well, have a part to play in that, including submitting to the authority, even if they are pagan of the day. Why do we submit? Well, two reasons it says there in verse 5. We, uh, we submit to the authorities, verse 5, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Punishment, the state is expected to punish those who do wrong. Even an unjust state has that expectation placed upon them. It's not up to us to decide, well, the government's corrupt, I'm not going to pay my tax. Interestingly, that was a big issue in Rome in the first century and why it was a focus for Paul. There were actually there were tax riots in the first century in Rome because people felt the taxes were so high um, in Rome. Something's never changed, eh? Death and taxes, as they say. Uh, it's not up to us to decide not to pay the electricity bill just because we think ESCOM isn't doing their job properly. Um, so the government has expected to punish those who do wrong, and it's also an expectation that God puts on our conscience, he says there. It's necessary because of your conscience. It should nag your conscience as a follower of Jesus um, if you are doing things wrong, if you are not wearing your seatbelt or, I don't know, watching pirated movies or dodging your tax. It should nag your conscience uh, as a believer um, because you are being disobedient to someone who is God's servant. If the state is God's authority and we break their laws, it's as good as we are breaking the laws that God has called us to follow. Our conscience should bother us in that. Paul says it's necessary to submit to that government. But you must understand, thirdly, uh, this morning, that there is an overriding principle that sits above all that Paul says here. God's overriding principle, thirdly, is what you must not miss here. Now, I want to say that some people, and it's become quite popular these days, to tackle this question 
by saying um, God has designated different authorities on earth and they only have authority within certain circles. So there's a state that's given authority, the church is given authority, and a family is given authority. And then what they do is they work out all the categories of what you must obey for the state, what you must obey for the church, what you must obey for the family. Now, it's, in many ways, it's kind of true. But it is very dangerous if you make those the three ultimate authorities on earth. One, because it's actually not expressly said that anywhere in Scripture. It doesn't say that in Scripture. It doesn't say that. Uh, and there's a lot of crossover. Um, and um, it, it should bother us that we give that kind of authority to the church and to family. Um, and if you're the kind of church, and I know you don't do this, but if you say we're a family church, it sounds great, but what do single people think when they come to your church? Are single people not then part of any family? What do, what do, what do they do? And we subconsciously then, or very subtly should I say, say that the best thing to be is in a family married with children. But is that really what the Bible says? No. And if that is the case, then the Apostle Paul is left out because he was single. So beware of making an idol of family as the ultimate thing that you should have, and that authority is you know, outside of the church and the state's control. And beware of saying that the church has some sort of authority. Um, we're Protestants. This is, one of a, this is a Protestant church. We have 500 years of history. Um, much, of it sh much of it is stained in blood from men and women who held to the claim that God has entrusted his word to the individual, who should have the right to the scriptures in his or her own language, and the freedom of conscience to make the decision to follow what that word says, without even the church dictating what it should be. People died for that. And now we want to go back to medieval Roman Catholicism and make the church some sort of authority? That's dangerous ground, my friends. That is dangerous ground. People shed blood so that you and I could have the word read in our own language, and interpret it according to our conscience. And we must, we must not lose that. We must not lose that by creating some sort of authority over us, which could very easily, and does, when we do this, cults start. When we do this, cults start. And the problem with you and I is we get lazy. We get lazy, and then we just let some priest tell us what to do instead of opening the scriptures and examining them for ourselves. We're getting lazy. We're not doing the hard work of reading the scriptures and examining them. Oh, well, the bishop just told me to do it, so that's what I've got to do. Please don't do that. There are things I get wrong. And I shouldn't have that kind of authority over you. I should be saying to you, look what the scriptures say. Look what the scriptures say. Look what the scriptures say. That's my task. It's not just, I shouldn't be saying, do what I say. I should be saying, do what God says. Helping you understand what the scriptures say. You know, I've noticed lately as I travel around that less and less people actually check their Bibles. It's hard to tell, I know, because you've all got digital devices now. And you could just as easily be looking as, at Facebook as you could be at Romans 13. Probably some of you are. Actually, sometimes when I've gone home and I've checked my Facebook, people have been posting stuff at the very time I was preaching while they were sitting there. 
And it wasn't pictures of me, it was pictures of kittens and stuff, you know? You see, some people are laughing guiltily because they've just posted something. But the, the, the sharp edge of this is don't be lazy. Don't let the church make your decisions for you. Examine the scriptures. Hear what they are saying. And make the decision. We believe that the individual conscience in submission to God has the say. That is very dangerous because we split then and we make, and, and we get, there are hundreds of different churches and groups and splits. That is the lesser risk. That is the lesser risk than everybody conforming to some earthly organization that claims to be the voice of God. Because that is what the medieval Roman Catholic Church did for nearly a thousand years and the gospel was lost. My friends, we do not want to go back to that. We are Protestants. We want you to have God's word in your language and for you to understand it and apply it according to your conscience. So history is full of terrible examples of us, when, of, of our failures when we've elevated authority of the family or the church above what the scriptures give us. It is the motto of our denomination. It's the motto of our churches. And it's what we hold to more than anything else. God's word above all things. God's word above all churches. God's word above all bishops. God's word above all pastors. It has to be that. Or we are in deep trouble. We're in deep trouble if we change that just because we want to limit the state's authority over us. We get ourselves into dangerous waters if we do that. Here's the summary, verse 7, of how we should see this. Verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I mean, this is so brilliant. This is, I mean... This is really um, summarizing what Jesus said. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Uh, Peter summarizes this uh, brilliantly in, um, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. You give the right difference to the right people, in other words. What do we do as brothers and sisters? We love one another. And by the way, there's the family. Here's the family of believers here. Single people and married people, people with children, people without children. This is the family of believers. Love them. What do we do with the state? We honor them accordingly, as God instructs us. And what do we do above all else? We fear God. And we obey the state in the fear of God. Which means the receiver of revenue gets your tax, not your tithe. Which means the president gets your honor, not your worship. Which means the policeman gets your respect, but not necessarily your, rever your reverence. The right people get the right deference. And the state doesn't become God. And the church doesn't become God. 
render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And that means move away from this pharisaical trap of trying to categorize what the state can do and what the family can do and what the church can do. No. You give the right reverence to the right people at the right time, and all of it is motivated from verse 8 and is the context of this passage. Verse 8 continues from verse 7. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. See, if you notice chapter 12 and chapter 13, bracket these verses, these seven verses in chapter 13. And both of them talk about love. And what is Christian love? It's not worldly love. It's not emotional love. It's not earthly, lustful love. It is seeking the other person's best interests. It is doing what is right according to God's word for that person. Out of love for you, I won't participate in a lie about your sexuality. I will not give you false comfort about all religions going to the same God. And I will not give you that popular lie that good people go to heaven. Because if I love you, I will tell you that truth. See, love is the, love is the ethic here. Out of God commanded love for my enemies, pagans and an unjust government, I submit to their authority, I pay my taxes, I pay my speeding fines, which I shouldn't have had in the first place. I don't steal, I wear a mask. Because of love. Out of God commanded love for my for God's world and its people, I seek the best interests of my society, caring for the poor, standing up for those treated unjustly, being involved in civil society and not hiding away from it, being a voice for truth in our society and not keeping quiet about it. Why? Because I love the world that God has called me to love. I love the enemies that God has called me to love. That is the ethic here, my friends. As I said last week, we often just write this off because it is too hard. But let me tell you, this is how society is transformed. Not by laws, but by love. And history will show you this. The history of the Roman Empire will show you this. In Paul's day, he gives these instructions to the Roman believers to submit to the government as pagan as they were. In those 300 years, there were many times where terrible persecution broke out against believers. There were many times when believers were put in difficult positions as they were... As they were tested on honoring the emperor but fearing God. And in honor of the emperor, as paying due honor to the emperor, they paid their taxes. But they didn't stop worshiping Jesus when they were instructed. They didn't stop preaching the gospel when they were instructed to. Because we fear God and we honor the king. The apostle said in Acts, you must fear God, not men. And when Christians acted out of love in their community and their societies, do you know what happened? The great and mighty Roman Empire changed. Over those 300 years as Christianity grew, the great and mighty pagan Roman Empire changed. And the brutality of that empire was softened. Babies were saved from exposure as Christians gathered up babies that people threw out 
because there wasn't abortion in those days. They would throw them in the rubbish tip if it was a girl and they wanted a boy. Christians would go out at night and gather those babies up and care for them. That's how orphanages began. Widows were cared for because there was no structure in society to care for women. The church took widows in and cared for them. You see the instructions in Timothy's letters. Slavery disappeared. Slavery became absurd when Christianity became dominant in the empire because absurd things happened. Do you know what would happen in the Roman Empire? A slave would become a pastor of a church and then his master would be a member of that church. And it became ridiculous. And slavery disappeared and faded away from an empire that had one-third of its population as slaves. Christianity transformed it. Violent sport, which pagans had a bloodlust for, violent sport disappeared. The gladiators disappeared because of the growth of Christianity. Famously, Telemachus was the turning point around about 480. Telemachus, a humble, godly man, saw these brutal gladiator games happening in front of the crowds in Rome and could not keep uh, his conscience quiet about it anymore. And he ran onto the, onto the state, into the field to stop the gladiators from slaughtering one another, begged them to stop. We're, we're human beings made in the image of God. We should not be doing this to one another. And there's different history Different historical records about this. Either the emperor did this and they killed him or the crowd stoned him. It's, we're not sure what happened. But what we know happened is the crowd's stomach was so turned by the sight of a humble Christian man begging people to be merciful that they, they, they became they, they disgusted by it. This distaste for this blood sport and brutal gladiator games faded away. As a matter of fact, in 404 AD, the emperor actually put a stop to it himself. It is not impossible for love to transform society. It's not a Hollywood movie. It's the gospel. Christians can change society. Not by defiance, but by love. And that will cost you it will cost you, my friends. It will cost you to submit to unjust rules, to seek God's wisdom in knowing where to draw the line, and to say, this is what we... So far, no further. It will cost you. And sadly, often we don't do it if it's convenient to us. Many professing Christians didn't stand up to the state in the past when they should have. Should have shown civil obedience when they didn't. Now suddenly people want to show civil obedience, a dis a civil disobedience. It will cost you. Do the hard work of examining the scriptures to understand and to work out, according to your conscience, how to honor the king, how we love the family of believers, and how we fear God, not men. Let's pray. Father, in these days where it's just so easy to jump on the bandwagon, to join the revolution or the counter-revolution, 
to be angry and defiant. It's so easy to do those things these days. And so hard to do things Christ's way. Lord, forgive us for letting our own emotions or the mood of the world grab hold of us. And Lord, will you ensure that your word grabs hold of us? That in the face of where our world is at, make us such a people who love the family of believers, who fear God, and who rightly honor the King. We cannot do this without your power at work in us. So make us such a people, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. That's good. Are we singing again? Let's sing together as we close.